The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Modern Adventurer Podcast. I'm your host, John Horsfall. I'm an adventurer and photographer and each week I'll be talking with a new guest about their latest adventure from around the world. For all the new listeners and subscribers who have joined, I speak to adventurers and explorers who do remarkable things in the field of exploration and endurance. This is an immersive podcast, so this season their story is cut to music and cinematic effects as we immerse ourselves into the heart of their adventure. My next guest is a British explorer and filmmaker who is at the forefront of modern exploration. From the Arctic to the rainforest, she has pursued all sorts of expeditions around the world. On today's podcast, we talk particularly about the rainforest and the hostile environment that she had to encounter on her latest expedition in the Amazon. Our story is out there, and to tell it firsthand, I am delighted to introduce Lucy Shepherd to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to get you back on. We had you on episode 18 talking about your one of your latest expeditions. And today you are fresh, fresh back from your uh, other expedition out in South America, which we will talk to, talk about uh, later on in the podcast. But um, before for people who haven't listened to that episode or who don't know you, who are you? What do you do? And how did you get into this sort of life of adventures? Yeah, so who am I? I'm Lucy Shepherd. Yeah, I would best describe myself as an explorer. Um, I think it's, uh, we don't hear that term very much anymore, the term explorer, but I most definitely think we should use it unapologetically now. I think we can all be explorers in our own right. Um, for me, personally, um, I use the term explorer because, well, in my most recent expeditions, it's the best way to describe um, and explain what I do. So I've been doing expeditions for over 10 years now. I started when I was 18. Uh, I was lucky enough to be picked to be one of 10 to go off to the Arctic of Svalbard for 10 whole weeks. So we were completely trained up. I had to learn the first taste of fundraising, which as anyone who does adventures knows that it's pretty much the hardest thing about doing anything like this, it's the fundraising. But that was my introduction to that. It was my introduction to the wilds. Um, after that 10-week expedition, it was just one of those feelings that that's the best version of myself and how can I just keep doing this? Um, I just loved every aspect of it, really. Um, the challenge, the camaraderie with the team, the being sort of so connected to the environment. And uh, yeah, from then, I just made it my mission to try and get on as many expeditions as I could. Started hanging around the Royal Geographical Society. Uh, politely pestering people um, and it worked I started sort of getting more skills high altitude mountaineering and things like that 
And I've been a professional explorer for a number of years now, but I've gone full-time explorer uh, since since uh, last mid last year, um, and it's looking like I can stay that way, which is which is amazing. And that really is, I suppose, a childhood dream when I was eighteen, um, thinking that maybe with that one day I could be Lucy Shepherd explorer and like be full-time. And so now to actually say it is pretty pretty great and it's been a bit full, full circle actually because yeah I've recently got back from um, South America but also I was just guiding um, myself in Svalbard um, so where it all began um, so 11 years later I was guiding myself and we had an interesting encounter with the polar bear but everything was fine but it's uh, it's great to sort of see things everything clicking clicking together and uh, yeah looking forward to sharing more of Guyana and South America uh, on the podcast today. Well, I'm sure uh, people have a lot of questions, which hopefully we'll answer today. So, I mean, like when we spoke last, it was your trip in the Amazon and you were talking about going out there again, <laughs> which is a story you're going to tell today. So in terms of the planning for this trip, how for people who don't know you or, how, or anything about sort of expedition planning, how did this sort of come about, this, this expedition? Yeah, goodness. I mean, the expedition planning with this was huge. Um, it started, so my previous expedition um, uh, in the Amazon that I did in 2020, I finished that trip and I thought it was it was clear that there was so much left to explore in that area. Uh, it's a very unknown area, the Kanuku Mountains. Um, there's not much about it online. Half of it is protected. Um, so that's when you Google it, that's what you'll find most of all. Um, but in terms of people actually going into the ground, into the deep jungle, people don't do it. Um, it's a place filled with myths and legends. It's got a lot of uh, a lot of fear surrounding it as well. Um, there's sort of uh, fear, uh, knowledge of uncontacted tribes and things like that, whether or whether or not that's true. Uh, mythical tr- creatures that live in the jungle, all that sort of thing. And uh, the only maps that the, that we have access to are 50 years old, but they're very unreliable. So basically a, a Canadian 50 years ago flew over with a pilot, took some pictures and then just did some drawings from those pictures. So as you can imagine, when you're looking down at a canopy with using a camera that's 50 years old, it wasn't accurate. Um, so I looked at these maps and I finished this expedition and talked to kind of like a mentor, Ian Craddock, this guy who ex-Special Forces lived out in Guyana, finished this last expedition in 2020 and said, look, I really want to do something big. And he just looked at me and said, "We, you're going to have to cross the whole thing now, aren't you? Meaning cross the whole Kanuku Mountains. And the whole, technically the whole Kanuku Mountains goes further than it looks like it does on the map. It starts from the Esquibo River, so the mighty Esquibo River close to the Suriname border. And it goes all the way to the Brazilian border. Um, so all the way west to the Brazilian border. And it's a huge, huge distance. I mean, it's like... It spans, I mean, we ended up walking over 400 kilometers, but it, in, as the crow flies, it's about 200, 250 kilometers. And um, everyone thought this wasn't going to be a po- wasn't going to be possible. They thought it wasn't, it wasn't not going to be um, viable at all. I was sitting here in a hotel in Georgetown in Guyana, you know, these uh the, the the beeping from outside as you get in all of these South American um, hot countries, the humidity. And uh, I just thought, well, that's got to be it. This, this The impossible is going to be made possible. And so I went home. Um, Ian and I started planning. We started planning this trip. But just a couple months later, he tragically and sadly and suddenly um, passed away 
uh, which was which was a big blow. Obviously lost a friend, but also lost the sort of this key, this wealth of knowledge. He had so many contacts in Guyana that was going to make the planning so much easier. Uh, he had government contacts. You, it's not like you can just go to the the Kanuki Mountains or most places actually and just walk. Um, you have to get permissions. You have to get permits. Uh, all sorts from from the likes of tribal chiefs who technically own the area to the the protected area committee. So it's just endless. I mean, these countries love paperwork. They love paperwork and permits. And so when he passed away, it was kind of like, what well, is is it going to be viable? Is it just too much to ask for me to organise it? Luckily, one of my good friends and also Ian's good friend as well, um, uh, Anders Anderson, who's a good friend, Danish Danish guy, uh, he said he'll come on board and he'll we'll, we'll do it in sort of Ian's name and we'll work together to make this possible, um, which was incredible. So it was a two, two-man two band. It was myself and Anders who organised this. And it took months. It took, it took, I mean, we probably spent full time on it for about six months but as as everything as it got closer and closer and closer it was just it was a tidal wave of organization and everything went everything was thrown at us we had um had to deal with a lot of authorities we had to deal with um last minute changes we had to deal with covid of course um so much preparation from so we had two resupplies that we had to organize there was only two options to have resupplies uh, that were economical and that were the two major rivers that we would cross so we would have we we had to plan that Anders would have a boat um come from a boat for a d- couple of days journey from the nearest village and drop off a barrel full of food then leave leave them at coordinates and let us know the coordinates and then we would we would find it there. So there's all that sort of thing as plus the rescue, um, organizing uh, sort of a rough route. Um, yeah, it, the, the list went on and on and on. It did feel like Anders and I just constantly had a tennis racket and problems that were the tennis ball were thrown our way. We just kept having to batter and battering. And it was, it was, it's a fun experience. Uh, if you've been on expeditions before, you know that nothing ever goes to plan and it's, you have to be so reactive and you just have to think, okay, how are we going to sort this? How are you going to sort this? Once you're there, there's no choice. You're going to do it. Um, But yeah, it was, it was a mammoth uh, task and I'm very proud to have even got to the start line, to be honest. Because your expedition before was also up in, around Guyana, well, in Guyana. Yeah, so... In the Amazon. So surely with that knowledge and that wealth of experience, that surely helped with the planning of this trip, did it not? 100%. So previously I'd done a shorter route through the Kanukus from south to north. And what that had done is it had almost given me a bit of uh, I guess, credit in the bank for the authorities, for the governments there, and also for the indigenous Amerindian people to know that what we were doing, you know, I could do it and I could lead a group there. Um, it also introduced me to so many contacts of uh, my team. So what the expedition we were proposing most recently was so mammoth that it wasn't like I could just take anyone that was strangers. Um, luckily, because I knew people, I had trust, I knew their capabilities. So I took people who were you know, my friends already from previous expeditions, um, which which was a real, gave, gave you a head start. But yeah, no, I don't think I could have just gone without any uh, past experience in the country doing expeditions. What was the sort of moment? Because you obviously, as you said, with all the sort of funding, with all the uh, sort of paperwork, visas, uh, government officials that you had to sort of put in, was sort of a moment where it sort of all came together and you're like, right, we're off. Not until 
the boat dropped us off at the insertion point because we had right up until we were even dropped off. I mean, I think we might come to that in a little bit, but right up until we were dropped off, we were having things going wrong where it could have been the end of the expedition. And, you know, the expedition itself, anything could happen on any step. So I I don't think I really realised that this was possible until finally got out of the jungle safe um, all those, you know, months later and realised, okay, okay, now I can breathe. Anders and I can breathe a sigh of uh, relief because although I was in the jungle constantly, Anders was in this, in civilization on the edge, um, a few days contact away with a sat phone, hoping nothing, <laughs> nothing came his way. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's jump into the story and let's head over to the Kanuku Mountains. And so the idea was probably to fly from the UK over there and it sounds like there was all sorts of challenges that erupted along the way. Yeah so in late September it was time to finally leave. Uh, I I flew from the UK. Uh, Anders was already out there. He'd been out there organising things for a couple of weeks. Um, you land in Georgetown. Georgetown's a very vibrant city. It's um, quite, uh, quite Caribbean-esque. Um, there's, there's people from all over really so there's Caribbean people there's almost Brazilian type people um, there's a lot of, there's some Dutch people from Suriname and um, it's very very multicultural um, and it's a very fun city but you arrive late at night and the, uh, the airport's full, full with people trying to offer you taxis as usual and um, jump in a taxi and finally meet Anders and there's this there's just so much excitement in the air that that what we've been planning for months is starting to starting to happen and after a few days of getting sort of last minute supplies we had to arrange all the resupplies for food um we were finally meeting meeting the team in letham so letham is a very letham is our last point of civilization really uh it's a it's a couple hours journey from from georgetown and letham it's a town but it's a very basic town there is kind of wild west like it's uh, no no tarmac roads and just dusty roads and very very hot and um, on the side of Letham you look out at the Kanuku Mountains and you can see just the vastness of them and you realise that you're going to cross them and it's funny when you look at the jungle um, from a distance just greenery but you know that inside it's so dense and deep and damp and it's just so unknown Um, it feels you start to feel a little bit overwhelmed as as you look at the scale of what you're about to about to go into but meeting the team and meeting my friends of the sort of uh uh Chinese and um and uh, Lionel of uh, some of the some of the team for the first time for in a couple of years was so exciting and it was funny actually because I hear from them I start talking to them about the trip and they tell me that their family and their friends from their village had said why are you doing this why are you going on this expedition um, and because they thought that they would never return. Um, and so I felt very honoured and uh, trust trusted that these guys were putting their faith in me um, and Anders to sort of make this expedition a, a success. But it really shows you that they all had the adventure gene um, and they wanted to be a part of this, which was quite an honour, really. Um, and they're such, such great guys. But it was great for them to all meet. Um, we all looked at the maps. These maps, so I said they're 50 years old, but because of the distance is so vast, um, lying them out um, on the floor to have a look at our rough route. So we, we have a route um, 
knowing where we're going to meet the resupplies. But the problem with the jungle is that you don't know how long it's going to take. You can look at resupply one, you can look at resupply two, but it might take three weeks, it might take four weeks. You don't know what's in there. Um, the terrain is just, you have to be feet on the ground and you kind of have to adjust it every day. Um, you can't plan the route more than that, really. Um, but it was cool. We laid out all the maps. There was 12 maps, so it went... It was about uh, 15 metres of maps that we were looking at, um, which was quite daunting um, as we sat there looking at them. Um, but after a lot of admin, I mean, there's so much admin in all these expeditions, uh, it was finally time to depart for our insertion point. And to get to our insertion point, it wasn't easy and nothing nothing is easy. So it would take, uh, it took a day and a, a day and a half in a four by four, um, no roads, just sort of getting through um, the savannah. So uh, the Kanuki Mountains are surrounded by the hot savannah. Um, so we drove through that and then we reached our, uh, reached the rainforest and would jump into a boat. And this boat was a two and a half day journey. And this is where the adventure really began. Because the boat, the boats that we were using, we used two boats. They're long, thin aluminium, um, aluminium boats, and they're very, very old. They've got dents. They're full of dents, and they, you basically, you, you pack them full of all your kits. You, you have your life jackets. It's very hot. You, it's very, very flat on the water at this point, um, and you jump in and you start going, making your way um, into the jungle. And as you're, we've got a very small motor of 15 horsepower motor that we're using to, to go upstream. Uh, it's very hot on the water if you've ever been in the rainforest. Uh, it's a beautiful place to be when you're when you're on rivers, but it's so, so hot. Uh, and I always think that when you're on the river, you see the pristine side of the jungle. Um, and it's the place that is the idea that when we think of a jungle, we think of uh, full of life and we think of uh, colourful uh, wildlife jumping, uh, fish jumping out of the water, wildlife in the trees, things like that, which you do get on the water. But as we're sitting in this boat, as it's going along, you look over to either side and you look into the into the canopy and it's just black. And you know that <laughs> in a couple of days after the boat ride, you're going to be stepping off and you're going to be cutting trail into there. And it's a very, very different story um, to actually be walking rather than um, on the river. And um, the river that we were going on is the Mighty Eskiba River. And it's called Mighty because it's known for having a lot of rapids. So our insertion point would be at the point where the rapids just got so ridiculous, a place called King Williams Falls. And um, it's here where, other than portaging the boats um, a little bit on the way, it was they couldn't go any further than this. So this would be our start point. But as we were um, sort of a day away from this point, we start hitting some rapids and they're, they're fine, a bit of white water. Uh, we portage the boat a little bit and then you know, get back in the boat. So portaging, if anyone doesn't know, means you drag the boat. It's pretty hard work, either by walking in the river or by getting it on land and pulling it. But um, on one occasion we see some rapids and I'm in the boat, the first boat going ahead and we, it doesn't look too bad, but as we approach um, they look much worse, oh, they become much worse and it's obvious that they're worse than we thought. And the cap we have two, we have a boat captain and then sort of basically an assistant. And for some reason the assistant was driving this boat at this point and the engine stalled just at the wrong moment. But we've committed at this point, we've committed so we have to keep going. So the engine starts again. We don't have the speed that we had. We're only using a 15 horsepower engine, which is 
absolutely nothing. Um, we've got the wrong wrong engine on, on this occasion. And um, we take on the rapids and it is much bigger. It was all hidden from the water. It's much bigger rapids than we thought. The boat flies up into the air uh, and doesn't, it, we get air, but it doesn't clear the rapid. And um, we're basically stuck. The front of the boat is, is clear. The back of the boat, we've got white water coming. Um, there's a whirlpool on the left. There's rocks on the left. Uh, white water is hitting the side. Um, and we're, we're, we're stuck and we're trying to use our weight. We're trying to rock it. We've got an oar, we're trying to paddle it because if we flip to the left, then it's a real serious scenario. This is, these are some big rapids and um, we, we could get either pinned to the rock or we could just get sucked in and, and stuck. These boats are not meant to capsize. It's worth mentioning that they don't capsize. It's just a thing that they, they, don't, they don't do. And after a few seconds, well, actually I say seconds, it was a couple of minutes, um, felt like eternity. Um, I, I was filming part of this actually and I realised that something was really seriously going to go wrong. Put the camera in um, my dry bag, thankfully, and after just a moment uh, the water caught it. We got catapulted out, we got flipped into the water, we were tumbling down. Luckily we got flipped onto the right side, if we'd gone the left it would have been, would have been seriously bad. Uh, we were tumbling underneath, we were trying to hold each other's hands, uh, we couldn't, it was just too powerful the water. I was holding onto um, a camera dry bag, which gave me some, some buoyancy. Um, and after a few seconds of just sort of trying to grasp the air, uh, we popped out the other side. A miracle, we popped out the other side. Uh, and uh, every, no one was injured, amazingly. And the other boat came to rescue us. They came to rescue us, pop us popped us on the rock in the middle of the river, and then went to start to retrieve, um, to retrieve the boat, retrieve the engine that had gone. Uh, and also bits and pieces that had had that were in the boat that were floating, and you know what? It was it was crazy because if we had lost even one thing, uh, one bag of that, everything we have, you know, we don't take anything unnecessary. So everything had something important: the sat phone, any food, the first aid kit, um, maps. If we'd lost one thing, that would have been the expedition over with because we're such a small expedition, really. You know, it was just. Anders and I, with a very small amount of sponsor, well, sponsorship compared to the, what the grand, grandness and size of the actual expedition. Um, and so it was a reminder that we are very much in the mercy, at the mercy of the, of the jungle. And as I stood on that rock, um, some of my teammates were quite shaken up actually, They're pretty, pretty um, shocked to have, have experienced that. I mean, these, these guys are amazing swimmers, but I think they knew the remoteness of what we were about to do and any it, it's just us it's just us out there and um we yeah we had to really respect it uh, and the water especially is, is is a is a frightful frightful place but yeah we yeah no, no one was hurt we started portaging the boat until we couldn't anymore and then we were finally finally dropped off we said we're goodbye to anders and the boat guys um and then i stood there I stood there finally in the damp and wetness of under the canopy. Um, on one side, I had four guys, so my my team, we were a team of five, um, and I had four four guys all wearing our 35, 40 kilograms rucksacks, and they're looking at me to sort of navigate their way, um, our way through the jungle. And on the other side, I've just got this wall of forest and trees, and uh, it's a very <clears throat> jungles can vary very much in their denseness but what we experienced for those first month or so was just um just so many 
such dense, and when I say dense forest, I mean um, lots of small trees, lots of vines, lots of um, lots of roots. So it's not just like you can use your machete to just cut once and then you step forward. You have to cut from all angles, uh, and it's it's anything but walking is what we realised. So we started started heading heading into the jungle. And I remembered very clearly why it takes, so it takes a few weeks for your body to adjust, for you to get used to being in the jungle. Um, and I remembered that from before, but it's, everyone says it's hot, everyone says it's sweaty, it certainly is. Um, but you don't, what you don't realize is just how slow it is. It is, it takes a lot of, I think, mental resilience to just realize the pace that you're going at is slow. Um, and just you're streaming with sweat, especially to start with as your body is starting to adjust. But um, yeah, you are crawling, so you're constantly having to crawl under um, into the into onto the floor. And the forest floor is you can never see the forest floor really. It's it's a bit I I describe it a bit like being in a compost heap. So you know, compost bin um, is very squishy, uh, and it kind of smells that rotting smell. Um, and it's wet. So it's, you're constantly squish, squishing down and then you're crawling on the floor underneath uh, underneath trees. And, but also you're always having to keep so alert. Um, there are obviously snakes that you're always watching out for. There's scorpions that you're watching out for. Ants, spiky trees. Uh, we're constantly having to warn each other about spiky trees because they're needle-like trees everywhere that just... Um, that just splinter you and pierce you that you spend the whole night getting out otherwise um and yeah it was it was slow progress for those first few weeks um every night i would lie in my hammock and i would just stare up into the darkness and you've got the howler monkeys in the in the distance um you've got the frogs uh, making their their big bellowing noise um and i would just think how long am I going to be here because I try and maintain some sort of control but there was no point in trying to do that there was no point in trying to think well maybe we're going to average 2k a day from now on maybe that means we'll get to our resupply in five weeks and then yeah oh gosh will I be home for Christmas I tried this would all be going around in my head at night but until I actually realized there's no point in doing that I have to embrace the unknown that's why I'm here then it wasn't until then I could actually get some get some peace from it (laughs) Was there a particular moment on that trip? Because you've sort of spoken about the sort of hardship that you've been going through. And I imagine for listeners thinking, and I suppose, is there a sort of particular moment that you can remember on the adventure where you sort of sit back and sort of found this amazing moment along the way? Yeah, absolutely. There were a couple of moments of that. It was such a long trip and I'm I'm thankful that there were. There was... um, in the middle of the in the trip, the, the rainforest really changed, and it became I sort of describe it like uh, you know Tomb Raider rainforest that big rocks with vines coming down, um, and actually the some of the light, some of the sunlight could actually shine their rays down onto the floor, so you could actually feel the heat of the sun, which previously we hadn't had. We'd just been in the dark the whole time, um, and it felt very much like how you would draw a jungle as a child, and. There was a few few times where we'd have a break and we'd be next to these huge rocks and I'd sort of be climbing the vines and things like that and you, in a way you felt safe. You're never safe in the jungle, but but because the sun, you feel felt the sun on your skin, you felt a little bit uh, of like relief. And there was moments like that where we were just sort of playing really, which was was just so much fun. And other times where as we got towards the mountainous section. Um, 
we would be we would have such it was a slog to climb up mountains in the jungle uh, you try and grab hold of trees or rocks but because the, the the ground is so wet anything just falls apart you have to be very careful when you climb up and uh, it just falls out of your hand but we get to the top and we'd occasionally have like a tiny view through the trees um, and be able to see where we'd come from and just see these rolling uh, forest uh, filled mountains and uh, one of my team Vivian he just goes up and he sees this and he goes oh boy you know I never ever believed that I would be this high up in the Kuniku mountains but here we are and there was that sense of sense of achievement that we would get um that was towards the end as well where it's like well maybe maybe this is within reach now which was uh, was amazing because we had so many times where it was close call and it could have ended so differently and tragically um I really felt like we got away with a lot, uh, a lot, so much could have happened. Day, daily challenges we, we faced, really. Everything is a challenge. I mean, even even just um, walking is hard because let's, let me try and explain what it's like to um, to go through when you'll, you'll get to a very thick undergrowth bit and you'll start moving. But you'll realise your feet aren't actually on the ground. You're on some large bush or some large tree. Um, walking on these, walking on lots of different branches that if one of these breaks you're just going to break a leg or anything like that that would have meant the end of an expedition the expedition because yeah, breaking leg there's only so much you can you can do with that but also uh, I mentioned snakes briefly the bushmaster snakes they're meant to be quite rare they're definitely not rare in these in this area um, bushmaster snakes are they can grow up to 10, um, 10 well no they can grow up to 12 feet in length we would see them in about 10 feet um, huge and very very wide as well but their camouflage is just um, so good that they'll be on the canopy floor and you just won't be able to see them or or to the untrained eye it's very difficult to see them and that's the biggest threat that the team if you ask them what they were scared of they would say the bushmaster snakes they've got in the Amerindian culture they're feared hugely um, they, they, they whistle these snakes whistle so they have a two-tone whistle uh, when they hear you coming, they'll whistle and they'll tell each other um, in the mountain. They often live in the mountains in the rocky areas. And we would be passing and the whistles would just start and they would be everywhere and they'd be very close as well. And um, so they were very much around, but then they also tend to get quite aggressive. So they're seen as quite aggressive snakes and they'll defend their territory. And of course, this is a place where humans... Uh, it's it's been it's said that humans have never really uh, been before, so it's very unlikely that these bushmaster snakes have ever experienced humans. So they're scared. Um, they're chasing. They, they they're meant to chase you as well. They travel in pairs. Um, at night, they have been known to curl underneath your hammock um, for your warmth, and then they strike when you least expect it. So they they haven't got the best reputation. Uh, they also have um, a little. Hidden, like one of their their bone comes out of their tail, and um, they have been known that once they've bitten you, they jump on top of you and then whip you with their venomous uh, bone bony tail, which is lovely. Um, but we we had quite a few moments where we'd be stepping. One moment in particular I'll describe is uh, so I was I was going third. Vivian was cutting trail, so cutting trail with the machete. Um, cutting cutting as much as he could then it was Lionel and Lionel and I were chatting and we would we, you always go in a single file of course um, and you leave a couple of meters um, distance between you because if one person has sees a snake or there are wasps or bees which there always are uh, then it gives you time to make a decision of which way you're going to go 
And uh, Lionel and I are chatting, you know, oh, well, what are you most afraid of in the jungle? And Lionel says, oh, venomous snakes, um, because you can't, you just can't see them. A lot of the other things, the jaguars, um, even the spiders, you'll, you'll see them because they move, but the venomous snakes, you just, you do not see them. As soon as he said that, Vivian just yells, screams, he almost falls down. He drops his bows and arrow, bow and arrow and his machete and he luckily falls in the right direction. But there was a snake and the snake went for him. He had gone into sort of survival mode and dropped everything next to it. And he just goes, shouts, Bushmaster. And we start having to run back where we come, come from because they, they strike and they can jump quite a, quite a big distance. And it was just, okay, heart-throbbing heart moment. This was the first time, so this was a, a couple of weeks in, the first time we'd actually seen one as we were moving, when we were moving, so we hadn't seen it um, first. And um, the problem was that he dropped his his tools right next to it, and we needed to get these tools. We couldn't just leave them. Um, so we had to make a decision. Um, this snake was being very aggressive towards towards us and towards Vivian. And we had its its partner one, so they have they have this partner and this partner. We couldn't see it, but it was in the bushes. So they they like to live in uh, uh, lots of um, like bushy thickness, and you could hear it in the distance uh, or close close by actually. And um, it was whistling away, and we had to uh, use our bow and arrow to get it away um, to get get Vivian's tools but it was so, oh Vivian was sweating he was he was really shaken up because um yeah it so almost got him um I was there ready I was, I thought he'd been bitten to start with so because I went are you okay and he went no no I'm not so I was like ready about to start, start cutting tri- down trees to get the get signal for the sat phone and get the first aid kit out and things like that but yeah luckily luckily he was okay and unfortunately he had quite a few quite a few close close calls with um with bushmaster snakes he i don't think him he's not a fan of them let's just say that <laughs> he's plays plays they've they've toyed with his life a little bit too much um <laughs> bushmaster snakes wow god and jeez what a sort of moment to sort of have and you know you had that throughout your entire your entire journey and so we're sort of um moving along to sort of towards the end you had been almost 50 days out in the jungle you know having to sort of deal with this on a daily basis how when you were sort of getting towards the end what were the sort of feelings like within the group and where were you yeah so as we got towards the end we didn't we never sort of counted our counted our chickens so to speak until we were really really close to the end because every step is something can happen um and you know we're we're also fighting things like skin infection things like that and it's it does become a point where every step is painful. Uh, you can manage it as much as you want, but when you don't have access to just rest and drying out things, um, it's just it takes its toll. So every every minute seems like a long time. <laughs> but the last, I would say probably where we got to the last night, when we knew the next day, providing nothing, no accidents happened, then we would get to the end. Um, that was a big moment because <laughs> we all we, we'd run out of food again because um, again you only take as much as you as much as you can possibly. But um, we're all lying in our hammocks that night. You go to bed quite early in the jungle. Um, in fact, you go to bed very early in the jungle because it gets dark very quickly. It suddenly gets dark rapidly, um, and as soon as it gets dark, you should really be in your hammock, getting off the ground from the snakes and the things you can't see. Um, and it's a safety thing really. But 
in the Kanuki Mountains, especially towards the end of this whole trip, it was very cold, um, surprisingly, very cold at night. And we'd all be we'd all be sleeping in our hammocks on this last night. And I heard one of the, one of the team get up and start stoking the fire, and that he was just standing there next to the fire. And I thought, well, I'll get up because I'm I'm freezing and we don't actually need sleep tonight. And then it ended up that a whole team got up. We all just spent the whole night around the fire, um, kind of this buzz of excitement and euphoria that we were actually going to do this and this was actually going to happen. I think we we stayed until around 4 a.m. and then we couldn't couldn't wait any longer. We just decided let's just let's just go. Let's just let's just make our move and start making our way to the end. And uh, it was a little there was a little bit of um, hesitation as we started because we'd created this such family. Uh, just unusual family dynamic. Here I am, this the one that you might seem as the odd one out, but uh, in a way, on, on some of them, they were um, looking after me, but in a way I was looking after them and in being an, almost like a, a mother hen to some of the younger ones. And we had a funny relationship, an interesting relationship. I respected them, they would look after me, but then I would look after them and tell them the decision of what, we're, what we were doing each day and where we were going and things like that. So. It was very special and I think they started to realise to where <laughs> I've got used to this routine so much and this jungle way of life. Um, because of course these guys spend a lot of time in the jungle but they don't, the max time that any of them had spent in the jungle um, in one go was 12 days. And that wasn't even moving every single day. So they live in the edges of the jungle and go in for different reasons um, uh, frequently. But this was moving every single day um, for 50 days. Uh, in just non-stop, no rest. And I think they got used to it and then got used to just how we were doing things and the idea of going back and being with their families and uh, uh, having the uncertainty of the world again. Um, yeah, it, it gave them quite hesitation and sadness, I think, a little bit, just as it did to me. You know, what was what was going to come? Yes, I couldn't wait to have the relief and be in safety, but yeah, I mean, anyone who does these sorts of things, you do it because you love it and it's addictive and uh, not to have it again was quite a scary scenario. Yeah, and so what was the sort of view looking out and when when it all sort of came to an end? So we, as we approached the end, uh, just our last part really was, um, so we got to the top of this, the high point of, of the day and we could finally see the savannah for the first time so this, we were finally out of the jungle we could also see Lethem um, so that was actually where we where we started we could see it again because um, we'd, we'd gone backwards in a way and uh, yeah that was the first sign of civilization we saw um, saw what the end really and then after that we just started making our way down for a few hours to to the savannah out of the jungle and it was coming out of the out of, out into the savannah you felt that heat onto you and the crunchness of the grass um, rather than this wet and darkness and humidity and yeah it just felt it just felt such a such a relief really <laughs> wow god what an amazing adventure and Good. Do, I mean, do you keep in touch with the four guys that you went on this trip with? You are still in contact? I do indeed. Yeah. So some, not all of them are easy to contact. Some of them are, don't have any technology or um, don't even know how to. I mean, some of them, are, we call them bushmen. 
Bushmen. Um, so they you give them a phone, and they've no idea no idea what to do with it. But a couple of the others, um, Vivian and Mikey, the younger younger guys. Yeah, I'm in touch with them regularly. Um, so they've installed Wi-Fi in their in their villages. It's a government scheme. Um, so I can actually talk to them. And I'm actually, I was speaking with Vivian recently because we're collaborating. We're doing a, a virtual talk together for something, um, which is which is great to give him, give him that opportunity as well. So, yeah, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to be back doing things with them. I think um, I think we've got some adventures up our sleeve. And how did the 50-year-old maps compare to the real thing? They were they were pretty accurate on the mountainous areas because it kind of makes sense because if you you could see the the contours and things like that. But low low down when we were in swamp like areas and trying to know where the creeks were, they just really weren't accurate. Um, I think there's going to be I I expect within the next year or two the lidar technology um, is going to improve so much that they will be really good because. Uh, they, I mean, Google Maps tries with their contour lines and things like that, but I think LiDAR should be able to show us where the water is. That I mean, that's the biggest thing. Um, when you're in the jungle, you need water source every night in order to wash, in order to get water. And um, if you kind of know where that is, you can base, right, we're going to try and walk two kilometres today. Again, doesn't sound very much, but that's a, kind of a good day <laughs> in that jungle. Um, so yeah, I think in the next couple of years, it's going to be pretty good. Yeah, I, th- I think everyone sort of underestimate just, you know, like when we look at a Google map here and we think, oh, you know, walk 20 miles. Okay, that'll probably take about a day or something. In jungle, everyone <laughs> always underestimates. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And I think you just, you just shouldn't have a number in your head for the day. Otherwise, expect it's much worse to be like have sort of high expectations and not get there for your mental health is bad. So just think, right, I'm going to walk eight hours for today. I'm just going to see what happens. I think that's the best way to approach any jungle trip. And did it take long to sort of come back to the UK and sort of recover after sort of 50 days of being in the jungle, machetering away? Is that the word? Machetering? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I suppose macheting. Yeah, I reckon we can get away with that word. Um, yeah, no, it was a bit of a whirlwind when I got back. Um I've sort of finished and we had a lot to do in the country in terms of go and see people, shake shake lots of hands and do interviews and things like that. And then the same same happened when I got back. So it wasn't really I had I had sort of three weeks of nonstop just talking about an expedition that I hadn't even had time to digest yet and reflect. So I was just repeating the same. I sort of selected three stories um that I could remember. It's funny when you finish an expedition you're thinking, well, what the ha- what happened? Um, <laughs> because you haven't had time to actually think what happened. So I just picked a couple couple things, and then a few weeks later, I actually had time to stop, reflect, and think. Okay, wow, wow, we did it. Yeah, I, th- I think when you sort of get back from these trips, it, it, you need that sort of time to reflect on the sort of feelings. Because when you're fresh out of it, you're sort of either on a massive high or a massive low, and mm-hmm. so. That sort of reflects in what you sort of um, portray very early on. But actually, once you go back, think about it, think about what you've done, you sort of have time to sort of gather your thoughts and actually be able to sort of tell the actual story in the way that you want to tell it. 100%. And also gives you time to understand what you've learned and why you did it. And uh, uh, yeah, not not trying by reflecting i think you're um, less likely to get that low that we talk mm. about um it's very easy to get low after a trip um 
But if you can think, take the good, good bits that you learn out of it and how can you do, you know, not that again, not you're never going to do the same trip again, but how can you, the things that you loved about it and the things that you really want to um, emphasize and harness in the future things, then what, what's that going to entail? So I think that's what I've been doing uh, ever since I got back from that trip and why I haven't sort of jumped in to deciding exactly what I'm doing uh, next year until, until now as I start to hone in on it. Well, what an incredible story. And, um, you know, for people listening, I'm sure there will be more intrigued about the Guyana rainforest and heading out there in no time at all. Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. Well, there's a part of the show where we ask five questions to each guest each week. A bit different from last time you were here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, with the first being... What does it mean to have purpose? I think to have purpose is it's a reason to get up in the morning. Uh, it drives you and it also makes you feel like you're doing exactly what you should be doing um, personally. Oh, amazing. And might be slightly different from uh, the last episode that you were on, but what is your favorite quote? I think it's probably the same quote. Um, I'm going to say it's, yeah, I believe it's the same quote. Amelia, er Amelia Earhart, which is uh, the quote of adventure is worthwhile in itself. And for me, I think you, you, you can just do adventure for yourself. It doesn't have to have lots of other reasons as well. Um, so if you want to do an adventure, just just go for it. You don't have to have to answer to anyone. Very nice. And what is your favorite travel book and why? My favorite travel book and why, um, maybe, uh, maybe it's an unusual one. Maybe it's not. It's mad, bad and dangerous to know. I don't know if that's a travel book, but it's Reynolds Fines. And it was a book that is a, it's a book that changed me because it's sort of just filled with so many different stories. And it shows you that you can have so many different adventures in a lifetime. You don't just have to have one and they can come in all different forms and sizes. Um, so that inspired me personally. Amazing. And why are these sort of adventures that you undertake so important to you? These adventures are important to me um, for lots of different reasons. For myself personally, I think it's I am the best version of myself when I do these adventures. And I know without a doubt that I am a better human being when I do these 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 expeditions and these adventures and that grow with it. Um, so that's one reason. But also I hope that by sharing what I do um, can inspire other people to get outside. I think be, by being outside, we have more of a connection to the outside world and maybe, just maybe, you'll want to uh, protect it and share your passion for it as well. Very nice. And in your lifetime, what is the most memorable place that you've been and why? The most memorable place I have been and why in my lifetime, probably Svalbard. Svalbard up in the Arctic is where it all started for me. Um, and it's a place that when the when the sun is shining, there's 100% visit, visibility and you're just skiing along with a polk with a sled behind you. It is, there's nothing quite like it. It's just spectacular, sublime scenery and you just feel so at one. Uh, it sounds quite quite hippie and uh, cheesy, but I can't, yeah, it's, it's an incredible place. And to go back there recently again, was a very humbling experience. So if you can, if you get the chance to go, do try and go. When you're sort of skiing along, is it a sort of silence that sort of greets you or is it just the sound of the wind? What can you sort of hear when you're up there skiing so along? So when you're skiing along, you, you have this very specific sound of your skis just 
your skis moving um, back and forth, and yeah, you'll have a you'll have a little bit of wind coming through uh, as through your through your hat um, and through up and down the mountains. Um, but it's it's that crisp snow that you're gliding through uh, really comes to mind when I think of Svalbard and think of Arctic polking. Very nice. And finally, how can people follow you and find you, Lucy, and follow your big adventures for the future? So people can find me on lucy-shepherd.com and I'm Lucy Sheps on social media. Very nice. Well, Lucy, it's been an absolute pleasure getting you on again and listening to your stories. No, thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a huge pleasure to share it and it's always nice to relive going back to the jungle. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully uh, we'll have you back on soon for your big adventure next year or the year after, whenever it may be. Absolutely. Yeah, now I've got lots, lots up, lots, um, lots to come. So yeah, I look forward to sharing that too. Amazing. Well, Lucy, thank you so much again. Thank you. It's been really, really appreciate it. It's great to talk. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you're listening on Apple. A massive thank you to those who reviewed it. And I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day wherever you are in the world and happy adventures. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.